Thank you for downloading Atypical, the podcast. If you enjoy our work, all we ask is that you leave us a review in your podcast player and share it with your friends. It helps us reach more people, and it's always great to hear from you. Thank you again, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Atypical, the podcast. Welcome to Atypical the Podcast, the podcast where we look at life from a more atypical perspective. My name's Simon Heeday, your host, and I'm afraid it is just me again this week. Lots of things going on, and yeah, anyway. Um, I should also quickly say, it's currently 31 and a half degrees in my room where I'm recording this, and so whilst my one listener in Phoenix, Arizona might say, that's a nice cool day, not so much in the UK. The houses are not really built for, well, anything above about 20 degrees centigrade. So I apologise now. I will try to cut out any slurping noises because misophonia from taking lots of sips of water throughout this. Anyway, so as I've as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I've had some issues in the past with PTSD and just with generalised emotional regulation and you know, autism. And I've had a bit of a difficult time in the last week or so and that's kind of reminded me of some of this so as part of my using a podcaster's therapy series yes kuro i can hear you loud and clear uh, I, I thought that today i would dive into the quite fascinating world of emotional awareness that that cornerstone of human experience because you see as humans we have a fairly incredible ability to identify manage and react to our emotions yet not everyone does there is a condition, I suppose is probably the best term for it, called elixithemia. Uh, and it's basically where emotional awareness gets disrupted. You know, and that's the disruption to your ability to recognise, to process, to, to describe your own feelings. I'm sure it's something we've all felt at some point, but for some people, this is a constant situation they live with. So elixithemia is considered a, well, for want of a better term, personality trait. It remains relatively stable over time. Some people have an innate tendency towards it, and it can arise secondarily due to trauma or neurological disease or injury. For me, it was uh, a robbery. I was robbed, and that kind of triggered it as like a co-occurring condition with the PTSD. How best to describe this? Uh, have you ever felt anxious and decided to leave a bit of an awkward party early? Or you felt unsatisfied at work and thought of switching careers? Oh, and who can forget that wonderful feeling of tasting that nice ice cream and just wanting another scoop. Sorry, I'm making myself hungry, aren't I? It's because it's warm, I'm just thinking about ice cream. Um, but anyway, that's that's the power of emotions guiding our decisions. Now, you know, I've done lots of reading, as usual, you know, something like, and it looks like quite a few researchers have been using some fairly fancy tools over the years to try and study these emotions. Not just in us, but also in other animals. We'll focus on humans today, though. Um, and as you might imagine, where multiple people are involved, there are multiple opinions on how the brain manages emotions. I once asked uh, Dr. Fenella Wrigley um, what the sort of collective term for a group of doctors was, and her immediate response was an indecision. There you go. It's just <laughs> one of those things. People like to have different points of view. Anyway, I'm getting off topic again. Told you. Warm weather, brain melting. Go back and listen to our heat episode. That was embarrassing. Um, anyway, most, most 
experts that I've found seem to agree on at least the one thing. Emotions can be simple, like I'm feeling good, I'm feeling bad, but they can also be complex. Like, I'm feeling melancholic because of that rainy evening in Paris. So, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this fairly unique, fairly unique, it's either unique or it's not, uh, emotional state called elixithemia. Um, imagine someone who finds it hard to understand or even describe their feelings. You know, that could well be elixithemia. What was curious is that while most of us feel nervousness and can say, I'm nervous, someone with elixithemia might have that sensation without recognising or being able to name it. So, like I say, there, there are many different ways to look at elixithemia. I'm going to quickly discuss what looks like the most popular one called the Toronto model. No jokes about Rob Ford, please. Um, the This perspective breaks down elixithemia into sort of three aspects, I guess, three parts. First of all, there is external focus. And this is where people focus more on the obvious stuff and avoid deep emotional thoughts. The second is trouble identifying feelings. Basically, they struggle to identify or understand what they're feeling. And thirdly, difficulty in expressing those feelings. They can't easily put those emotions into words and, and share them with others. Interestingly, unless it's caused by an illness, elixithemia does seem to remain pretty stable throughout one's life. It's um. It's like a trait. Some have it more, some less. Yet you can change it with the right treatments, especially when treating a co-occurring condition like depression. Think of it as a spectrum, like how anxiety varies among people. So why am I discussing this? Well, understanding elixithemia helps us to grasp how crucial emotional awareness is. It plays a massive role in various disorders from mood to developmental to neurological. And frankly, I've been struggling the last week or so and found that I was really unsure what my mood was. Was it anger, upset, blinding rage, relief? It was all a bit of a muddle. Anyway, you don't need to hear about that. Back to my reading and my notes. Don't worry, it, it, I almost know what I want to say. Moving swiftly on. Uh, what I found interesting is that elixithemia has been associated with quite a diverse range of psychiatric conditions, including depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance abuse, PTSD, and a panoply of others. Um, but what makes it particularly interesting for this podcast especially is that there is a highly prevalent number of people within the autistic community who might have it and i'll come on to that a little bit later on there was a meta-analysis which i read which was fairly stunning several studies have linked elixithemia to adverse childhood experiences like uh, abuse neglect socioeconomic deprivation this suggests some environmental factors which can contribute to elixithemia developing. There is also some evidence for genetic influences. And as I sort of mentioned, kind of uh, alluded to, that's the right word, isn't it? There's a reasonably high comorbidity between elixithemia and autism. And that does suggest certain shared genetic mechanisms, given that autism is genetic. It's not caused by vaccines. But first of all, a little history, because I do like to try and find the early roots of all these things that we discuss on Atypical. I know, I know, I can hear you reaching for the kettle, I'll keep it really short. Elixithemia seems that it was first spotted in patients coming into doctors with slightly odd physical symptoms, things like pain and fatigue. 
the patients could sit down, say they were not feeling quite right, but struggled to put into words how they felt emotionally. The earliest reference I could find was Peter Sifnios writing in Psychotherapy and Psychosomatics in 1973. It looks like he and another psychiatrist called John Case Nema coined the term to mean without words for emotions. Now, you might think that if someone's not fully aware of their emotions, they might be shielded from some of the negativity. Perhaps they'd be less anxious or downcast. However, irony has it that it's the exact opposite. Their blurred emotional perception tends to make managing their feelings a bit of a tough nut to crack. The result? They're more prone to mood disorders. Now, some critics have pointed out that the symptoms of alexithemia sound suspiciously close to those of depression. But do a little more digging and loads more studies start to tease these two apart, showing they are quite distinct entities, even though they often co-appear. And let's not forget, conditions like anxiety disorders, PTSD, even OCD, often have a dash of alexithemia mixed in. I might be a sample of one on this episode, but I can attest to this. Now, on to the emotional regulation part. And I know it's a bit like trying to steer a ship through a stormy sea. Don't worry, the otters are safe. But managing emotions is crucial for most treatments of emotional issues. And it seems our old pal Elixithemia here has been casting its shadow some. Some new angles on the topic seem to suggest that at its core, Elixithemia is actually more of a... Uh, more of a hiccup in managing and recognising emotions. And if you've got a touch of elixithemia, navigating emotional waters might be that a little bit harder and could affect therapy outcomes for conditions like anxiety. Oh, and a bit of a curious side note here. Struggles with emotional regulation linked to elixithemia might also make one more prone to addictive behaviours, from betting on the ponies to checking your mobile phone just that little bit too often. There could be a connection here, and it's Probably something I might try and look into a bit further when we do an episode in the future on addiction and ADHD. Now then, we have autism and indeed other factors. Autism is a bit of a tricky one here, mostly because there's not heaps of research out there on this comorbidity. There seems to be rather more challenging there, and it made it very hard for me to nail down all the factors that could lead someone down the path of developing alexithemia when autistic, but we'll come to that shortly. And so, yeah, there's other factors, and I want to touch on those first. So, for starters, there's some research suggesting that where you come from plays a role. I found a really interesting paper where some researchers found differences in alexithemia between European-American and Asian university students with these sort of cross-cultural differences being cited when they were looking at students from the United States and from Malaysia. Oh, and here's an interesting tidbit. If you're from the countryside, you might have a higher chance of experiencing alexithemia than if you're a city dweller. Then there's an entire debate around gender and education. Some studies suggest that men and those with fewer years of formal education are more at risk of developing it. But not everyone's on board with this, and the lack of fuller studies makes it hard to tell who's right. But there are some interesting studies that could go further on this. As we've seen, anxiety and depression do seem to go hand in hand with alexithemia. But while we know a mix of things from your environment to your genes can give rise to these conditions, when it comes to socioeconomic status influencing alexithemia, it's a very different kettle of fish. About the only thing I can find everyone's pretty well agreed on is that a rocky childhood can pave the way for alexithemia in your later years. Hard times during your tender years, for want of a 
better term, can leave emotional scars that manifest as alexithemia. But here's where things get a little more intriguing, especially for us here on this podcast. Despite the lack of studies, pretty much all that do exist seem to say that alexithemia pops up quite a lot in certain conditions that have a genetic link, like, say, autism. As I said earlier on, or alluded to, it's really interesting. It looks like around half of those with autism, ASD, the term is used interchangeably within these papers, uh, also tick the box for alexithemia, 50%. That's a whopping tenfold increase compared to the rest of the population. And while some reckon that autists might not respond emotionally as like, Holistic people do, something we've talked about on this podcast before. It's not as straightforward as it seems. I found a really interesting study by Bird and Cook that seems to hint that the emotional challenges in autism may actually be more about the elixithemia than about the autism. Lastly, given the strong genetic ties in autism and seeing alexithemia popping up there quite a bit as well, it doesn't really take Sherlock Holmes to figure out that there might be a genetic angle to alexithemia as well. Some recent studies have even pinpointed potential genes that might be at play. All in all, just like the best of meals, the development of alexithemia is the mix of several ingredients from our environment, from our DNA, etc. Now then, Time to break out some neuroscience, and in this I'm slightly indebted to two of our regular listeners and by my sort of behind-the-scenes collaborators who are, you know, actual scientists and have doctorates in this kind of thing. I sent them a couple of the, uh, the, the papers and they've reduced it down to a nice easy, according to them, for me to explain to you. I get most of it, but come on, let's dive on in. Let's pretend this is a, an episode of Stuff You Should Know. I'm not sure who I am in that particular one. Let's go with Josh. Sure. So let's see if I can do their notes justice. Now, within the various papers we reviewed for this episode, we spotted several neuroimaging studies that have identified key brain regions involved in emotional awareness that show dysfunction in alexithemia. These include everyone's favourite prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, insula, and the amyg amygdala. Amygdala? Amygdala? We'll go with amygdala. First up, the prefrontal cortex plays a pretty key role. Specific cortexal... Cortexal? I'm badly reading this, aren't I? Specific... Let's just go... Okay. Specific prefrontal cortex. They've used all sorts of acronyms here. My goodness me. Let's try this again, shall we? First up, the prefrontal cortex plays a pretty key role. Areas like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and ventrolateral seem especially important. The ventromedial prefrontal cortex evaluates emotional information coming in from the body and the brain. If this area becomes damaged, it becomes much harder to feel emotions properly. The ventrolateral prefrontal cortex links language and emotional centres. Damage here makes it harder to put feelings into words. What I find particularly interesting is that the prefrontal cortex effectively encodes those decision values, and it helps to play a role in overall emotional regulation. It's also the area of the brain that many people argue is the seat of human consciousness. The anterior cingulate cortex monitors your physical signals from your body and integrates those into emotional feelings. Part of this is the pregenial, and that is active when people focus on their emotions. And damage to this can cause problems like being unable to connect bodily sensations to feelings, which, you know, could have significant problems in intimate situations. The anterior insula receives bodily signals from the heart, from breathing, sort of your 
visceral states, you know, and it communicates this information to other emotional regions. And so damage to this can lead to a disorder called acquired elixithemia, where people lose the ability to feel emotions. This does seem to suggest that the anterior insula is really essential in translating physical sensations into feelings. And last, but by no means least, the amygdala. It's a lovely name, isn't it? Uh, this processes emotional stimuli like uh, fearful faces, and it, it triggers bodily reactions. But damage to the amygdala doesn't seem to prevent normal emotional reactions in daily life. It looks like it provides input, but is not the core of emotional awareness. Deep brain areas like the ventral tangential area and the nucleus accumbens use dopamine, you know, our old friend from the ADHD episodes. They use dopamine signals to mark reward and motivate behavior. However, damage to these doesn't seem to fully eliminate emotional awareness, although it does seem to alter emotional tone. To put it simply, the prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the insula appear to be most central for generating emotional feelings and awareness, while some of these subcortical regions provide supporting inputs that influence the emotional processing. So thank you to my sciencey friends. I hope I didn't butcher that too badly, because neuroscience was never really my area of expertise when I did nursing. Are they awake? Yes, no. Anyway, moving swiftly on. What I found glaring from many of the papers I read is that it seems alexithemia has something of a deleterious, let's say, effect on mental health and social functioning. It seems it is associated with increased depression, with anxiety, with suicide risk, with somatic complaints and interpersonal problems. Alexithemia possibly because it causes deficits in that emotional regulation, could impact empathy and decision-making. There is some evidence that seems to indicate that intact emotional awareness might be an essential part of developing adaptive cognition and behaviours. It might sound obvious, but understanding our own emotions is pretty tricky business. For a long time, research has relied on self-reporting measures. Basically, surveys where people tick boxes to describe their feelings. You know, you've, you've all done these. I agree, I disagree, I feel like this, I feel like that, tick box. And whilst these can give us some pretty helpful insights, people are not always the most accurate judges of their own emotions, as, you know, certainly I can attest myself, and I'm pretty certain everyone listening knows one or two people in their lives who are not necessarily brilliant at judging their own emotions. But sometimes what we say doesn't fully match up with what's going on internally. That's not because we are not being honest with people, but we might genuinely not know how we are feeling or be able to explain it. Researchers have tried to get around this limitation by developing some more objective tests. For example, the Levels of Emotional Awareness scale gives people stories and asks them to infer characters' emotions rather than their own. It's potentially not all that dissimilar, I guess, from the sort of the theory of minds tests some people push for autistics, but when I read through them, they felt different enough to me. Anyway, another approach is looking at physical signs like heart rate or even brain scans and seeing if they sync up with those self-reported feelings. But emotions involve complex brain processing, and we're still working to unravel even the basics of that. With modern neuroimaging and computational modelling, scientists are able to start decoding the, the neural language of, of emotion, with all sorts of implications that we might have to look at another time. I may need a philosopher to help me with that one. Um, but 
early findings are suggesting some people may physically feel anxiety but be mislabeling it as a health issue. Others with difficult childhoods might not learn a rich emotional vocabulary. And some might overly focus externally rather than tuning in to their inner feelings. Because, in essence, many researchers are currently working to map these brain circuits, we will probably find out more in the coming years about what helps drive emotional awareness and help us to identify where that process is going wrong. If we could, you know, crack the brain's emotional code, it could enable personalised treatments to help people genuinely understand and manage their feelings. Rather than just relying on fallible self-surveys, uh, a more brain-based decoding approach could give us a biological insight into the mechanisms behind our emotional world. Imagine creating tailored therapies to help people tune into their feelings more clearly. Go back and listen to our Bicycle Day episode where we talked about some of the chemical ways in which people have attempted this in the past. The, the future of emotion research looks kind of exciting and I'm probably going to end up doing more reading on this because I may fall into a pit of interesting documents when researching this episode. I know, when don't I? And for me, the potential that we could integrate new techniques to, I guess, like illuminate this complex facet of human experience is an incredible potential thing we could have sometime soon. I feel like we may need to come back to this topic with others, maybe talk about how it affects our everyday lives and our relationships. I certainly know people close to me have sometimes expressed difficulty in understanding me or surprise at my reaction to things. I wonder how much of that was the autism and how much might be elixothemia. Anyway, thanks for sticking with me for this. I suspect we'll come back to it another time and I'll try and find some experts or those with more lived experience to come and join us. Before I wrap up, I spotted that the Australian government have launched a national autism strategy discussion paper and some guided questionnaires this week, and they are looking for public consultation on it. I don't know how many of my listeners might live down under, but if you do, or you know someone who does, why not go and take a look and help shape this final strategy? I've had a quick look, and it does seem to be focused on greater community awareness about autism and crucially something we've often talked about on this this podcast it's looking at timelines and delays in diagnosis as well as autistic people's access to justice and health services in general i'll include a link in the show notes or just use the search engine of your choice and look up australian government national autism strategy get those responses in right I've been talking for long enough now. It's really warm. I'm going to go and have a glass of wine in the garden. Have a great week all, and I will prod some of my co-hosts to try and come back soon so you're not just listening to me. But until then, take care. Have a great time. Bye. Two very quick things. One, Sally, turn off the podcast, it's over now. And Sam, thank you. And the dish ran away with the spoon.